Luke chapter 23, and beginning at verse 26. Luke chapter 23, and verses 26 to 49. This is the crucifixion and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Luke writes in verse 26, And as they laid him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they had saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who stood and had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And we'll finish our reading there. Now, would you turn to the passage that Alex read together uh, to us in Luke chapter 23? Luke chapter uh, 23. And we come uh, to the crucifixion of uh, our Lord. When I was a boy, I remember distinctly uh, when I was about nine, a group of us being together, and we were talking as boys would talk of the worst way to die. And all kinds of suggestions were made, drowning, being burnt alive, falling off the Empire State Building. But as the conversation um, progressed, the uh, suggestions made became more and more macabre and gruesome. Uh, and uh, 
with our vivid imaginations, we were coming up with all kinds of things as being boiled in oil or being slowly run over by a steamroller, feet first, of course, and, uh, or being dissected and eaten alive. However, all that speculation and frivolity was abruptly brought to an end when someone blotted out by crucifixion. That was an end to the argument. None of us were Christians, but all of us knew that crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most brutal ways to end a person's life. Invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, it has become synonymous with pain and suffering. It wasn't simply a means of execution, but was also a means of torture designed to actually prolong the suffering uh, and uh, hold out uh, death as long as possible. Crucifixion and suffering, intense suffering, uh, go hand in hand. Now, this evening I want to stand back from the passage that we read together and get a kind of overview of the suffering of our Lord. We'll come back to look at it in more detail, but tonight we want to take a panoramic view of his sufferings. And I want you to notice eight things. Please don't panic. We'll go through them uh, quickly. Notice, first of all, the brutality in his suffering. Look at verse 26. Uh, 26. And they led him away, and as they led him away, they see one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and led on him the cross to carry it uh, behind Jesus. Here we are introduced to this man, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Tripoli in uh, 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 Libya. We know there was an active Jewish community there in the first century. It had its own synagogue, and the Jews kept their own culture and identity. So this man, Simon, has traveled this 800 miles uh, from Tripoli, uh, Serene, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as he's coming into uh, Jerusalem, uh, the Romans uh, conscript him to carry the cross of Jesus. The Romans had the power to force anyone to carry uh, a burden for up to one, uh, one mile. You remember Jesus referenced that in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And here the soldiers randomly select this man, Simon, and force him to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, why did the soldiers do that? Why did they conscript Simon, uh, as they were legally entitled to do, to carry the cross? It was customary for the condemned criminal to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. Indeed, John tells us that Jesus started out carrying his own cross to the place of the skull. But at some point, the Roman soldiers conscripted Simon and put the cross on him. Why would they do that? Well, obviously, Jesus could no longer carry the cross himself. He had been so badly beaten and brutalized that he was no longer able to carry the cross, his own cross, to the place of crucifixion. Right, think of this. Jesus was in his prime, in his early 30s. He um, was incredibly fit, working in his father's uh, carpenter shop uh, and all the physical labor that that involved. He walked everywhere during his ministry. He was no pampered pastor who never broke a sweat uh, and simply pushed a pen. He was a fit man. 
But yet so weakened was he from the treatment that he received that he was unable to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. Again and again during his trials, they had beaten him, battered him, brutalized him, the sinless Son of God, so much so that Simon has to be conscripted to carry the cross. The loss of blood, the open wounds, the lack of refreshment, the bruising, uh, all the injuries that he endured combined together to weaken him so that physically he was unable to carry the cross, the brutality in his suffering. The second thing I want you to notice is the sympathy at his suffering. Look at verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. These women are not to be confused with the women who appear in verse 49, who followed him from Galilee, his followers, his disciples, who we would expect normally to be sympathetic towards him. Rather, these women were drawn from the general population of Jerusalem who had come to witness the crucifixion. In fact, most commentators believe that these women belonged to a kind of charitable guild that sought to bring some comfort to the condemned criminal. So they would follow the condemned man as he carried his cross, offering words of comfort, perhaps providing padding to protect the flesh from the burden of the cross that he was carrying, and more significantly, to provide drugs, opiates, to dull the pain. They saw it as a duty and as a ministry to try and bring comfort to the condemned. So here are women who are not unaccustomed to seeing suffering at first hand. That's their function. That's what they do. Perhaps almost on a weekly basis, they go out and follow men to the place of crucifixion, carrying their crosses. But when they see Jesus, something leads them to mourn and to lament in an extraordinary way. They are overwhelmed by his suffering and sorrow. Their hearts are moved because of him. There was something beyond the normal and beyond the ordinary when it came to Jesus carrying his cross to the place of crucifixion. If carrying your cross to a place of crucifixion could ever be described as normal and ordinary. These women who are accustomed to seeing men carrying crosses are shaken when they see uh, what was happening to our Lord. You know, sometimes doctors and nurses become desensitized to suffering. They see it every day. It no longer shocks them. It no longer distresses them as it did at the beginning. But just occasionally, they come across a case that is so awful so terrible that it breaks them completely. Well, that's what happened here. So, so awful did our Lord look that these women, these professional mourners, were broken with sympathy. Their hearts went out to Him. The sympathy at His suffering. And then, thirdly, I want you to notice the agony of His suffering. Look at verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him. The place of crucifixion, very appropriately, was called the place of the skull. It is Calvary in Latin, coming from the Greek word cranium, 
from which we get our English word cranium, and Golgotha in Aramaic, which means skull. Why it was called the place of the skull, we can't be sure. Some think it was because of the topography of the area. If you ever go to Israel, uh, just above the bus station in Jerusalem, you'll see um, a, a, a cliff face that looks and resembles a skull with, with um, two holes in the rock face where the eyes should be. Others suggest that uh, because of the skulls that were left by those that were crucified, it was known as the place of the skull. The truth is we can't be sure. It may have been some random reason that had slipped into the mists of time that nobody remembered why it was called the place of the skull. Incidentally, nowhere in Scripture is it called a hill. All we know that it was outside uh, the city, outside the city wall of Jerusalem. But it, it was there that Jesus experienced the agonies of crucifixion. Now, much has been written on crucifixion and uh, more recently has been portrayed in Hollywood films uh, about crucifixion. In the Journal of the Medical Association of America, they published a medical review some years ago about crucifixion and complete with uh, anatomical illustrations. It makes harrowing reading. But what I, what I want you to notice is that Scripture itself is very circumspect when it comes to describing the sufferings of Jesus. Verse 33 says, there they crucified him. Four words in English, three words in Greek, there they crucified him. No descriptions of nails being hammered uh, into uh, hands and waves of pain uh, shooting through his body. No descriptions of the crossbar being uh, hauled up that perpendicular pole and secured in place with the crucified Christ attached to it. No descriptions of beat, feet being secured, uh, relieving the pressure on the lungs. There is a complete absence of all of that in the Gospels. There they crucified Him. And the reason for that may be that the readers of the New Testament were so familiar with the uh, uh, horrors of crucifixion that nothing needed to be said. No explanation was necessary. Or perhaps, and I think this is more likely, uh, that they uh, wanted us to understand, that's the writers of the New Testament, wanted us to understand that the physical agonies our Lord endured were not the greatest agonies that he had to bear. You notice that when Jesus speaks to the women of Jerusalem in verses 28 and uh, to 30, he gives a prophecy of a greater suffering that would come upon them. Just look at those verses, verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? To have children was considered to be the greatest blessing that a Jewish woman could have. But a day is coming, says Jesus, when you will consider it to be a greater blessing to be without children. A day when you will want your very life to end and you will pray for the hills and the mountains to fall on you. 
Jesus is looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and it was absolutely awful. It was horrific. It was horrible. And in terms of the intensity and numeracy of the suffering, it was greater than the suffering associated with the crucifixion of Jesus. Does that sound wrong? Well, that's what Jesus says in verse 31. Quoting a Jewish proverb, which was familiar to everyone, he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? To paraphrase, if people do to me what they're doing now, how much worse How much greater will it be when the wrath of the Romans is unleashed upon the whole city? Do not weep for me, says Jesus. Weep for yourselves, for there is an even greater suffering coming upon you. And I think that's why it's wrong to focus upon the physical sufferings of Jesus. And that's why the gospel writers don't concentrate on the physical sufferings of Jesus, because other people have suffered to the same degree, and some people have suffered more than Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Men do these things when the tree is green. What will happen when it's dry? And that's why I don't like the images and the icons that portray a suffering Christ that you find in in orthodoxy, Greek orthodoxy, or you find in Catholicism. And that's why I don't like uh, to hear preaching that concentrates on the gruesome details of his physical agonies. And that's why I didn't go to see Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. I I don't want to minimize the physical sufferings of Jesus. This was brutal treatment for anyone made in the image of God, never mind the sinless Son of God, but those physical sufferings are only a part, a small part of the agonies that He endured on Calvary's cross. The real agony, the real burden, the excruciating pain He suffered was when He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When God the Father laid on him our sin and he unleashed his wrath, his justifiable wrath against that sin and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the real, angry, uh, the real agony, the real suffering, the greatest burden that he bore. And you can't describe that in a book and you can't watch that in a film. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. Men nailed him to a tree, and God rained down his wrath upon him. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the insensitivity to his suffering. We have already noticed the women of Jerusalem, these women who were regularly exposed to the cruelty of crucifixion, but there was something about Jesus' case that moved them to sympathy. But not everyone was moved to sympathy. Many were indifferent and insensitive to his suffering. At the end of verse 34, we read these words, 
and they cast lots to divide his garments. John tells us it was the soldiers who cast the lots. There were four of them, and since there were five pieces of clothing worn by a Jewish male, a turban, sandals, belt, uh, an outer tunic, it seems that each of the soldiers took one of these, but that left the seamless undergarment Uh, which uh, they didn't want to divide up because it was woven in one piece. And for this, they cast lots probably uh, uh, through a dice. Now, can you imagine this? They brutalized him by beating him. They mocked him. They stripped him. They crucified him. And what are they doing now? They're gambling over a piece of his clothing. There in the shadow of Calvary, these soldiers, these hardened, desensitized soldiers argue over a piece of clothing. All they're interested in is material gain, and they're oblivious to the sufferings of the Son of God. I remember being absolutely horrified when I was a a student and I was filling in a a particular church uh, for... uh, the summer, and I, I met a porter uh, who was came to that church, and he was a, a porter in the local hospital. And uh, he said to me on the way out of church one day, he said, you know, we only push Protestants. Uh, this was at the height of the troubles. I said, what do you mean you only push Protestants? And he, he told me that a few months before, a UDR soldier had been shot uh, in the center of the town, and there were two Catholic nurses who stood by and refused to attend them. They were off duty, and they refused to attend them. So since that that moment, uh, the Protestant porters in the hospital only pushed Protestants, and the Catholics only pushed Catholics. They were as bad as each other. There is something seriously wrong when people are unmoved by the suffering of their fellow creatures. Religion, ethnicity, color, nationality should be of no hindrance to sympathy. But here are these soldiers, and they are unmoved and insensitive as they gamble below the cross. And there are still people like that in our world. They hear of the agonies of Calvary and the sufferings of Jesus, and they just go on with their petty little lives unmoved, untouched, uninterested by the suffering that Jesus endured. As Charles Wesley wrote, All you who pass by to Jesus draw nigh, is it nothing to you that Jesus should die? Is it? Is it nothing to you that Jesus should die? The insensitivity to his suffering. The fifth thing I want you to notice is the mockery with his suffering. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Really? There has never been a more hollow untruth ever told in the world. Because wounds do wound, because words do wound and insults do injure. And what I want you to notice from the narrative was that blended into this brutality that Jesus received was mockery. You find the Jewish rulers doing it, you find the soldiers doing it, and you even find those who were crucified with him doing it. Look at verse 35, and the people stood by watching him, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They, they mocked his ministry. They mocked his identity. 
Did he really save others? Well, let him save himself. Some Christ, some Messiah, some chosen of God being crucified. How ridiculous. They scoffed at him. The authorized version says they derided him. The NIV says they sneered at him. It literally means, the word literally means they turned up their nose at him. And the soldiers do something similar in verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You're a king. You're a king. Call on your citizens. Call on your armies. Call on your soldiers to come and rescue you if you're a king. And then the criminals in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will certainly wound you. But I want you to notice that they mocked him not only verbally, but physically as well. Look at verse 10, or or look at verse 36 carefully. Uh, The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the Christ, uh, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. They, They mocked him by offering him sour wine. Now, I used to think that this was a kind of little a little oasis of kindness that was shown by the soldiers uh, in a, a sea of, of brutality and cruelty. But that's not the case. The giving of the wine was part of the mockery. And I, I, I don't want to appear unseemly tonight, and I, I don't want to offend you in any way, but I, I think we need to understand what was going on here. John tells us they soaked a sponge in this sour wine, put it on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. In days before the invention of toilet paper, these sponges were used to clean yourself after relieving yourself. And every Roman soldier carried one. And after use, they were washed out in in, uh, wine vinegar, in sour wine, to clean them and to uh, prevent the spread of infection. So it's not an act of kindness that's shown to Jesus. It's the ultimate insult. It's cruel horseplay. They're lifting this filthy sponge to the lips of Jesus to mock him. The mockery with his suffering. The sixth thing I want you to notice is the travesty behind his suffering. This would be barbaric treatment for anyone made in the image of God, but our Lord wasn't made in the image of God. He was God. He was the sinless Son of God. And His crucifixion was a great travesty of justice. You can see that in the notice of the charge that Pilate insisted on in verse 38, this is the king of the Jews. Remember what they were charging him with. They were charging him in order to get him put to death by the Romans. They were charging him with treason, of of trying to set up a rebellion, um, a, a rival to Caesar's authority. And so, Uh, Pilate then has this notice nailed above the cross, which read, this is the king of the Jews. Not not that he claimed to be king of the Jews, or not that he was a rival to Caesar, or that he wanted to dethrone Caesar. This is the king of the Jews. And in that statement, it was, if you like, Pilate's final declaration of his innocence. 
And when the Jews tried to remove it, Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. You see it again in the response of one of the thieves in verse 41. And we indeed uh, justly, for we are receiving uh, the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. He's innocent of all charges. And then after he died, in verse 47, we're told, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Three times by three independent witnesses, including the judge at his trial, he is proclaimed to be innocent. Jesus did nothing, absolutely nothing, worthy of death. He was innocent of all charges. And this whole scene is the greatest travesty of justice ever committed in the world. For Jesus was not only innocent of the charges that they uh, charged him with, the crime that they charged him with, but he was innocent of all crime. He was the sinless Son of God. And that's what makes this treatment all the more abhorrent, because he out of everyone who ever lived didn't deserve this, the travesty behind his suffering. The seventh thing I want you to notice is the necessity of his suffering. I want you to notice in the text the truth that was hidden in the insults that Jesus uh, received. Alex uh, made reference to this in his, his prayer. Look, first of all, at verse 38, at the insult of the Sanhedrin. He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Now, it is true that Jesus did save others during his ministry. He forgave sin, and uh, he brought salvation to so many. To the paralytic in Luke 5, he said, your sins are forgiven. To the woman who anointed him in Luke 7, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. It was true that he did save others. But that's the very reason he couldn't save himself. Because he saved others. Because he forgave their sin. He had to go to the cross in order to pay the price for that sin. When he forgave their sin, he was committing himself to the cross and to that payment for sin. You see it also with the dying thief. Look at what he says there in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But you see, Jesus couldn't do both. He could do one or the other, but he couldn't do both. Save yourself and us. He could save himself. Of course he could have saved himself. He could have called on legions of angels out of heaven to deliver him and slay his enemies. But if he, if he saved himself, he couldn't save them. He could save himself and not them, or he could save one of them as he did and not himself. Do you see the false premise in these two statements? He saved others. Let him save himself couldn't do it. It's because he saved others that he couldn't save himself. Save yourself and us. He couldn't do it. If he saved that dying thief, he couldn't save himself. His death was absolutely necessary if he was ever to forgive anyone else. If our sin was ever to be forgiven and we were ever to be reconciled to God, he had 
to suffer, bleed, and die. He had to bear wrath so that sin could be justifiably forgiven. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God took the eternal torment of all the people of God and laid it on his Son so that they might be saved and brought safely into heaven. The necessity of his suffering. So we have the brutality in his suffering, the sympathy at his suffering, the agony of his suffering, the insensitivity to his suffering, the mockery with his suffering, the travesty behind his suffering, the necessity for his suffering. And the last thing I want you to notice is the legacy from his suffering. I want you to notice even at the time of his crucifixion, the suffering of Christ wasn't without effect. Three, at least three people are brought to faith through that suffering. The first is Simon from Cyrene, the man who was forced to carry the cross. The fact that he is named in the gospel is very significant. He's not just a man from Cyrene. He's Simon from Cyrene. He's known to the readers. In fact, Mark calls him Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Not only was Simon known, but his sons were known too. So it seems this random act of conscription um, in, in which Simon was forced to carry the cross led to his conversion so that he was known uh, and uh, his sons were known in the life of the early church. That's Simon. Then you have the dying thief. He turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Something moved this man from hostility and mockery to trust and faith. And then thirdly, the very centurion who had been in charge of the crucifixion responds in verse 47 by praising God and saying, certainly this man was innocent. Mark gives us more detail and says that when the centurion heard this, uh, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And here are three eyewitnesses of the suffering of Jesus who come to believe in Jesus because of what they saw and heard. Simon, a random passerby, the thief, a man uh, with his friend who initially began to blaspheme and mock Jesus and the centurion, the one who had witnessed uh, the, and overseen the crucifixion and maybe, maybe was the very one who lifted that, that uh, sponge and put it to Jesus' lips. Random man, hostile man, a brutal man. All changed and brought to believe in Jesus. And that's the legacy of his suffering, that through his suffering and death, Lives are still being changed. Souls are still being saved. And men and women, boys and girls, are still being brought to faith in Jesus. And so many of us are a testimony to that tonight. And I need to ask you then, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he suffered in your place? Do you believe that through his suffering, all your sin? your secret sin, your hidden sin, as well as your outward sin, all of that sin can be forgiven. 
Are you part of the legacy of his suffering? I am. I believe in him. I believe he died in, for me and died in my place. Do you? We began by asking the question, what is the worst way to die? By drowning? By being burnt alive? By falling off the Empire State Building? It's not even by crucifixion. That's not the worst way to die. Do you know the worst way to die? The worst way to die is without Christ. That's the worst way to die. Because if you die without Christ, without believing in Him, you'll have to bear the punishment for your own sin in an eternity separated from God forever. Amen.